0: The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this, out. this
1: is going to be
0: crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm David Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work.
2: Today, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my south. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. And
0: Lucas Fleet This is Tate Fletcher, cage fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show. Or I'll be coming to see you
2: Then we ask them the big
0: questions Oh man, this is such a great question You've actually landed right on
2: the mark That's a, another
3: really good question It was great talking to some clever dudes I've gone
2: probably a little bit more in depth with you than uh, that I have in the book I've
4: done like 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this Oh, wow.
0: And sometimes we talk about darts.
4: There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favorite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I
3: think it's
0: uh, interesting that it's your favorite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only
4: sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The
0: Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously.
1: So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will.
2: Welcome. I got my To the Mojo Radio Show.
1: But it just won't work on hey, everybody, and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Lots going on globally, and as many of us are, we're in lockdown, but more on that shortly. This week, we're heading to Raise Your Game Town due north. It's the place where champions live. The gang are all here, so to speak, although the bus is shacked up in a shed, but like <laughs> the rest of the world, we've adapted. AP has done a little run to our local bottle load, the Dan Murphy. Hello, boys at Dan Murphy. and the, A <laughs> little this, run? The boys at the front and the boys in the loading dock. God, they <laughs> mistook him for a wholesaler. <laughs> <laughs> AP has filled the fridge. We are good to go for at least three days. Uh, Robbo, welcome to this week's show. Kick us off. Give us something remarkable to start the show. Robbo's remarkable facts.
4: It's about time. let's go. I'm guessing the answer is no, but I'm going to ask anyway. Are you a bit keen on your midnight snacks? No. Okay. Negative. Well, that may well be a good thing because it seems you're actually protecting your body from sunburn. A recent study has suggested that our skin cells contain complex internal clocks that run on a 24-hour ryth- rhythm, influenced by our master clock, the brain. The study shown that overnight, our skin cells reproduce rapidly, preparing and protecting our outer barrier for the sunlight and scratches of the coming day. During the day, these cells then selectively switch on genes involved with protecting us against the sun's ultraviolet rays. The 2017 study took this one step further and found, rather remarkably, that if we eat, eat late at night, our skin's clock assumes that we must be eating dinner and consequently pushes back the activation of the morning UV protection genes leaving us more exposed the next day. So while studies are increasingly showing that a lack of sleep is detrimental to our overall physical and mental health, it now seems that our skin can also suffer if we don't get enough Zs.
1: So there you go. Don't know. Don't know about that one. I will (laughs) leave that to the jury. We'll leave that unattended and we'll see whether we can find additional research to back uh, that study yeah, up.
4: I, well, I'll, I'll stick it up. There's, I found a couple of sources, so I'll stick the main research up that came out of Sydney's Macquarie <laughs> University up.
1: The only Zs I think we're counting right now is ZZ Top.
4: The
2: Mojo Radio Show.
1: All right. Our guest this week is Alan Stein Jr. And this is a guy who teaches us proven strategies to improve our business performance create effective leadership, helps our team cohesion, uh, develop winning mindsets. He talks a lot about rituals and routines. And his book, which I've actually gone through twice, the book's called Raise Your Game, looks behind the curtain. And it's really interesting because it shows us how to utilize the same strategies in business and in our life that elite athletes use to perform at a world-class level. He spent 15 years working with the highest performing athletes on the planet including NBA superstars Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry and the late, great Kobe Bryant as well as LeBron James. So he's worked around and with some of the best NBA players in the world and now he's working with corporate giants like American Express, Pepsi, Starbucks to drop a few names. The book is called Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best. And it is a good book. I really enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to hearing further thoughts on it. Alan, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you
3: so much for having me. It's awesome to connect halfway around the world. Halfway around the world. When, um, maybe, Or maybe when all the people, way around the world. I don't know. <laughs> when people meet you for the
1: first time, when they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply?
3: You know, at present, I just say keynote speaker, because uh, I think most people have at least a few degrees of, of separation or understanding of what that means. Uh, but then many times that morphs into, Oh, so you're a motivational speaker. And then that morphs into, Oh, so you're like Tony Robbins, uh, those types of things. But, but at least when I open it up with that, uh, and that's usually very generalized. It also depends on who I'm speaking to. Uh, cause sometimes I kind of lead with, you know, I'm, I'm a former basketball performance coach. Turned keynote speaker, uh, if it's someone that I believe is kind of in the sports or athletic world, so it really depends.
1: You're Allen Stone Jr. Who is Allen Stein Senior? Is is there? Was there
3: an Allen Stone Senior? There, there sure is. I actually talked to him earlier today. That's my father, who's in his early seventies and enjoying retired life with my mother. They live down in uh, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, uh, where I'm just north of Washington D.C. Here in Maryland. Um and uh his favorite joke, he always loves to tell people when he meets them that that he's the original Alan Stein and I'm just the carbon copy. <laughs> uh, that's his that's his typical dad joke that he hits with everybody. Uh but yes, I'm I'm very proud to have his name. When you think
1: back to growing up, Alan, and you think about your dad, tell me about a lesson that Alan Stein Sr. gave you that even today you call upon as a man.
3: Oh, I've got a perfect one for you. Uh, I want to say I was 12 or 13 years old, and I'm 44 at present, so we're talking uh, mid to late 80s. And my dad was taking – I have one younger brother, so he was taking my mom, my brother, and myself uh, to go see Michael Jordan play for the first time. And because I live in Washington, D.C., this was back when they were the Washington Bullets, and they played at a, an arena called the Cap Center. Uh, which they no longer play in, um, and you know, like most basketball folks my age, I mean, Michael Jordan was—I mean, he was everything. I, I had every poster and every Wheaties box and every Gatorade bottle and all sorts of memorabilia just plastered in my room. You know, had every pair of his sneakers and was so excited to be able to go to see him live for the first time. And we got on the we got on the highway and. My dad started to slow down, which was kind of weird because nobody slows down on a highway. And then he pulled all the way over onto the shoulder. And I'm sitting in the back of a station wagon, and I'm thinking, why in the world would he pull over on a highway? Well, we'd run out of gas. Uh, He had a a yellow Post-it note, and he had it stuck on his dashboard. And the Post-it note was a reminder for him to pick up some milk, but it covered the gas gauge so he couldn't see that he was running out of gas. (laughs) And we literally ran out of gas on the side of a major highway en route to go see my boyhood hero, Michael Jordan. And I immediately was like reduced to tears. I was so upset. All I kept saying is we're gonna miss the game. I'm not gonna see him like, in in a matter of a fraction of a second, like I was completely rattled and frazzled. And I just remember how calm my dad was and just basically took a breath and he looked over to the back seat at my brother and I and said, don't worry, we're not gonna miss a thing. And he got out of the car and he starts sprinting down the shoulder of a highway to the nearest gas station. And what certainly to me seemed like an eternity, but it was probably only 15 to 20 minutes, he comes sprinting back with a big red plastic gas can and he put enough gas in it to get us to the game. And we walked into the cap center as the national anthem was playing. So he was right. We, we didn't miss a thing. And that taught me two lessons that I'll never forget. The first, uh, my dad always taught me that Uh, that in order – you need to be early or else you're late. So the fact that we left early enough to go to that game that we could run out of gas and still make it on time shows how important it is to allow for unseen things to happen, You know, unforeseen circumstances, whether it's a flat tire or a missed flight or whatever. You should always pad enough time to get somewhere that's important so that you don't run the risk of missing it. And then, of course, the other was – and this is so applicable now given this global – you know, pandemic and crisis, we're all in is that when adversity hits, just stay calm and stay poised. You know, take a deep breath, take a beat, and figure out what is the best uh, resolution or best decision that I can make right now, given the circumstances that will move me forward. And, you know, he, he didn't even have to explain those two lessons to me, and he never did, but I saw firsthand and I put two and two together and realized what I had learned. And, and I used both of those pillars in everything I do now today. Do you know that's
1: interesting, Alan, because I've heard you talk about being early a lot and that is part of your standard operating procedure as a business person, as a person. Isn't it fascinating that that story goes back so far, yet 30 odd years ago, you still carry those lessons and execute? Because it, it's really nice hearing those sorts of stories because having listened to you, listen to you narrate your book and hearing you interviewed, it is part of you and part of your DNA. But isn't it? I guess it's important for people to understand the lessons that we are teaching. Kids are absorbing. Without us even teaching it, kids are absorbing, that they carry for their whole life. But number two, sometimes they consciously go, well, where did that come from? So it's
3: it's it's nice to see people putting rubber on the road because you are an early guy, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. And it's, and it's neat because that what you just said is so insightful. And that's really the the backbone of my parenting philosophy is I simply want to model everything that I can for my children. I mean, I can tell them things, but it's way more important for me to show them things. You know, I can tell my kids to be early, and if they constantly see me rolling up to things like their, you know, their basketball games late or I drop them off at practice late, uh, then I'm not setting that example. So to me, and that was, thankfully, that was one that was not only taught uh, by my, my parents, but was certainly one that was reiterated by every coach that I had. And you know, if if practice starts at four o'clock, you know you don't roll in at three fifty-nine. That's not that's not the way you prepare. That's not the way you know you get yourself ready. Uh, you roll in early enough that you can do everything necessary to be mentally, physically, and emotionally prepared to have your best practice ever. And yeah, so whether it's something that you've heard or something that's modeled for you, uh, then it's just a matter of doing those things consistently over and over uh, until that just becomes habit. I mean, I'm, I'm habitually early for everything.
1: That's a good line. I'm habitually early. And let's just camp here just for a second, then I want to take an off-ramp to being early at 359. Before we take that off-ramp, you're actually super competitive with your kids. And I've heard you say <laughs> with passion, I'm going to beat them. I never want to lose to my kids in anything. Tell me, Just talk me through that whole notion of why you won't let your kids win and why it's important for you to do that and what lesson are you wanting to embed into your kids?
3: Well, well before anybody goes and calls child services and, and has my children <laughs> removed from me, and they don't think I'm a psycho, uh, yes, anything that comes down to uh, intelligence or strategy or strength or speed or skill, uh, I don't let my children win. Um, and that's for a couple reasons. One, I want them to earn everything in this world. You know, I, I want—I don't want anything to be handed to them. You know, they're very fortunate to have two parents that love them unconditionally, that do provide adequate love and food and shelter. And my kids have plenty of other things uh, that they didn't necessarily earn. And I want to give them those things because I love them immensely as their father. Uh, but when it comes to any type of achievement or accolade. I want them to earn it, and it's important that they know that you know, you're know you 10 years old. I'm 44 years old. The chances of you being able to beat me in something that requires intellect or strategy or speed or skill is almost none, and I, I don't want to sandbag or cheat you out of the experience that you can get from losing. Uh, I'm a big believer that there are lessons to be learned from winning and there's lessons to be learned from losing. Now, as I said, so that I don't get my children taken away from me, there are two things that I do regularly. One is uh, I handicap the game. So if I'm going to race one of my children, if we're going to race 30 yards, I'll give them a 10 yard head start, but I'll still run as fast as I can and I'll still do everything I can to beat them. But if I handicapped it appropriately, they've got a good chance of beating me. And if they do beat me, They'll know it wasn't because I didn't try. They'll know they beat me fair and square. Uh, or maybe we're playing a, a game of horse out, you know, in the backyard, and maybe I'll play left-handed, and they'll play with with their dominant hand. Uh, once again, that's a way to kind of handicap me so that they have a better chance to win. Uh, and then on top of that, we also play several games of chance. You know, we'll play a board game where strategy doesn't come into play. It's just However, the dice land is who wins, so technically they'd have a 50-50 chance of winning that. So I don't want to make it sound like I always beat my kids because I don't. They win in things, but it's not because I let them win. It's because they earned it, and as they get older, I'll have to handicap things less and less. I mean nothing would make me prouder as a father than when my kids are 13, 14, 15 years old. For them to be able to beat me in things – and I'm not letting them win. Like it will suck to lose because I don't like to lose, but I will be so <laughs> proud when my kids can beat me in those things. And and truth be told, like even now, you know, we'll play a game like Connect Four uh, or Tic Tac Toe, and I would say one out of ten times they beat me, and they beat me fair and square. I don't even have to handicap that game anymore. Uh, and then, as we said with modeling, I make sure that when I win that I'm a very graceful winner. You know, I don't gloat. I don't, I don't rub their face in it. I don't talk trash to them. I just win because that's what I was expected to do. And that's that. And then when they do beat me, uh, you know, I give them a few seconds to kind of gloat a little bit because it is a big deal. But then I make sure that they know that they need to win with the same grace and that I have to show them how to lose with, with graciousness. And I congratulate them for winning. I don't make excuses. I don't pout. I don't cry about it. Uh, so I want them to see that because whether people keep score or not, life has a lot to do with how you handle winning and losing. And winning and losing on the court directly translate into how you win and lose in life or in business uh, based on how you view adversity and based on how you view success. It's interesting. If we stay on that track just for a second,
1: in the book, you talk about notable failures. Can you explain in your mind notable failures? It's an interesting way to phrase it. And do you personally have a most notable failure as an example?
3: You know, a notable failure... and, and- so at 44 years old, one of the things that I do remember when I was younger, and, and this is certainly through no fault of my parents. I mean, they, they raised me the best they could with the information they had. But when I was younger, I remember failure as being a bad thing. Like it was the other F word that you didn't, you didn't want to fail on a test or you didn't want to fail to make the team or you didn't want and, – and now I'm, I have a completely different mindset around that. Well, you still need to give your best effort and have your best attitude uh, but you have to embrace the fact that failure is a part of the process. You know, in theory, if you're a basketball player and you're shooting a jump shot, the goal is to make the ball for the ball to go in the hoop. If it doesn't, you technically failed at that very short-term goal, which was to make the shot. Uh, but most basketball players don't look at it that way. You miss a shot and you're like, okay, I'll make the next one. Um, and for some reason, when the stakes get a little bit higher, uh, we tend to view failure as if it's permanent. And it never is. So I have a much better relationship with failure now and realize that when things don't go my way or I fail at something that I was attempting or trying to achieve, that the best thing I can do is take a breath and then evaluate why did I fail and then look internally and ask myself, was this something that I could have done differently or did I had control over? Um, you know, sometimes you fail through no fault of your own. I mean, if, if you and I are both applying for the same job And, you know, you have more experience and better expertise and you're a better fit and they hire you. That doesn't necessarily mean that I failed or that I did anything wrong. You're just a better fit. There's nothing that I could have done differently uh, to have changed that outcome. And while it still may sting a little bit and I still may be disappointed that I didn't get the job, there's not really much I could have done differently. And and that's going to happen, too. Um, so I, I think it's important that we look at any failure, whether it's a short-term, acute one, uh, or something pretty big, uh, and you you try to learn the lesson from it, but then you put it behind you. You can't keep dwelling on failures of the past.
1: Explain next play, because I think that ties in nicely to where we are in this conversation. What's next play? How do we use it?
3: Most certainly. Well, uh, I believe Coach K, the head coach for the Duke men's basketball program, was was. The guy that coined that term, uh, because I remember reading about it in in many of his books, and I'm a huge Coach K fan and disciple, uh, but where I really saw it put into action was with uh, Mike Jones, who's the head basketball coach at DeMatha Catholic High School uh, in Washington, D.C., and one of the most brilliant coaches that I've ever been around. And One of the things that he does so well is teaches our players this concept of next play. And Basically, what he's saying is, uh, don't worry about the play that just happened, because that one's over. I need you refocusing your lens on the next play that's coming up. So you missed a a shot. Okay, next play. Uh, You turn the ball over. All right, next play. Uh, The referee didn't make a call. They missed the call. Okay, next play. Because if you keep uh, uh, wasting your mental, emotional, and physical energy into something that just happened that you can't change – then you're not fully present to devote that time and energy into the next play, which is the most important one, because it's the only one you can have an effect on. And if you look at the, the best players in the world, somebody like a Stephen Curry, I mean, it doesn't happen very often, but he could miss six or seven shots in a row, but he's able to wipe those away from his memory, and he'll shoot the next shot as if he made the first six or seven. And that is truly what it means to move to the next play. And, and hopefully folks listening can extrapolate that, to your life. You know, you, you get in an argument with a spouse or a child. Okay, next play. Uh, like we just said, you know, I applied for a job, I didn't get it, you got it. Okay, next play. You know, there's gonna be so many things that happen in your life that you have to be willing to just go ahead and move to that next play. And it doesn't mean that you don't learn from the previous experience, it just means that you don't live there. And, and you can be very resilient. I'm a big believer in grit and perseverance, and I believe having a next play mentality is, is basically the definition of that. You
1: know, it's funny, do people, do you find in the business world, Alan, I've read this in the book and it made me think that there are some people who want to wallow in it, that when they have shot six or seven, they haven't gone in, they will then wallow and they will have a default voice that then holds them in that place. And when somebody walks up and implements next play, it almost angers them is that why can't you wallow in this? Why can't you spend more time? How can you just move on? Does it, do you find sometimes there is that little gap there where sometimes people around you won't resonate with next play and it
3: almost upsets them? Oh, absolutely, without question. And in and, and full transparency, you know, I've conditioned myself to have a next play mentality, but there are times where there's a slight delay in for me to be able to move on. Uh, you know, a, a perfect example. You know, with with the global crisis that we're going through right now. You know, my main source of income is through keynote speaking at live events in front of other human beings. So uh, when our government here decided to, you know, uh, begin the quarantining and the the social distancing, um, I mean, that basically wiped my speaking calendar clean for a few months. And uh, I'll admit that that when that first happened, I had several postponements and cancellations in a 24-hour period. I was pretty down about it. I mean, I, I was looking through the world with a negative lens. I really felt like the sky was falling, and it was harder for me to move to that next play. Uh, and in that case, it took me about 12 or 14 hours to be able to move on. I mean, I was, I was pouting that night, and I went to bed kind of upset. But then I woke up with a, a new peaceful attitude that says, okay, I'm not going to be able to speak in front of live audiences for the next four to six weeks what can I do? What is my next play? How can I still be of service to others? What can I do virtually? Uh, can I book myself on podcasts like this show? What can I do to still be of service to others even though I can't do what was normal to me at the time? So in that case, uh, it, it wasn't just the snap of a finger. It took me a full night to move to the next play. But I'm okay with that uh, because I know other people that you know, got the same news three weeks ago and they still haven't moved on to the next play. They're still wallowing in it here three weeks later. So um, don't always worry about how quickly you bounce back. Just make sure that you do bounce back. And it's okay to have feelings of negativity, feelings of pessimism. It's okay to be upset when something doesn't go your way. Just make it your goal to be that way for the shortest period of time possible.
1: That's interesting. If we just camp here for a second, Viktor Frankl said, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So, are you talking about the gap? And the thing you talked about in the book, that I've heard you mention, is the gap between what we know and what we do. What have you learned personally, or what have you learned through your work about closing that gap or bridge, probably a better term, bridging that gap, Alan? Like that,
3: that gap between stimulus and response, how do, we, how do we bridge that? I'm very f- familiar with Viktor Frankl, although I have not read a ton of his work. And what I was familiar with was another concept. And I first heard it from Jack Canfield, uh, the gentleman that started the uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul series. And he called it uh, E plus R equals O. There's an event that happens. There's your response to that event. And that's going to equal the actual outcome. And what he's saying is you can't control the event perfect case in point is this global pandemic, the coronavirus. None of us can control that, but all of us have control over how we're going to respond to that, and that will heavily dictate the outcome that we have. Now, clearly, no matter what my response is, I can't snap my fingers and make the coronavirus disappear. I mean, if I would have been able to do that, I would have done that six weeks ago, and the world would be a much better place, but I can't. But what I can do is Change my response to what is happening in the world now. And I can be a responsible citizen and social distance myself to make sure that it doesn't spread. Uh, I can pivot away from doing live in person events to serving people virtually. Like there are responses that I can make that will improve the outcome. And it's the exact same thing with what you just said. That's what we all need to do. We don't control the events in our life, but we absolutely control the response that we choose to have. And that response doesn't necessarily guarantee us an outcome, but it can hopefully, it can hopefully influence it um, to, to a certain degree. And, and it's the same thing with this performance gap. You know, most people in the year 2020, you know, information is everywhere everywhere. Uh, all of us are, are dictate, you know, we, we all have access to our phones and our computers and, and the internet. We can find the information to just about anything we want. So lack of information is very rarely the reason that we get stuck in our lives. The reason we get stuck is not from lack of knowing, it's from lack of doing. Uh, and most people don't do a lot of the things that they know that they're supposed to do. Yeah. Uh, now, as human beings, we're all fallible. I don't think anybody's batting a thousand and, and, and shooting a perfect percentage, But I know for myself, I've closed significant performance gaps over the last couple years. I still have some, but I guarantee you that if you and I connect on another podcast a year from now, I'll have closed them even further. Or I actually love your terminology. I will have bridged that gap even further a year from now because I'm conscious of it. And all I would say is I don't want folks to get stifled by perfection. I want them to focus more on progress. Don't worry about where you are right now. Just worry about the direction that you're headed. And hopefully you're headed up uh, so that you'll be better tomorrow than you are today. And you're headed closer to being the person or the team or the business that you want to be. And in order to do that, we have to start doing the things that we know we're supposed to do. You know, we know we're supposed to to eat healthy and exercise. And we know we're supposed to save money for retirement and when we're older. And we know we're supposed to, you know, give our children, (coughs) excuse me, uh, uh, focused time and attention. Like we know all of these things. And yet most people don't do many of those things. So that's, that's what I always try and help people with is closing that gap. You know,
1: it's funny hearing you say that. That I think that, that there's the mindset part, but then there's, there's the doing the doing, the work part. And there's a great story that takes back to where we were earlier in this interview. And we talked about being early, 359, being early for things. And you've got a, a wonderful story you told about one of the greatest basketball players ever. In 2007, when Nike flew you to a training camp and you got to witness someone who was early and put this mindset into place, can you bridge the gap between my setup
3: and the story for us, please? Absolutely, without question. Well, uh, the player you're mentioning is, is the late Kobe Bryant, uh, who, who passed prior to this big coronavirus epidemic, which is crazy. I was talking to someone the other day. That now seems like that was so long ago. And it really wasn't. I mean, it was still only a couple of months, but we've been so sidetracked as a society about the current crisis that we forgot about that. But yeah, I had an opportunity to work um, the first ever Kobe Bryant Skills Academy. And it was a tremendous honor being somebody that was, you know, born and raised in a basketball bubble. I'd always heard these urban legends of how insanely intense Kobe's individual workouts were. So it was pretty cool when I got a chance to watch one. And as you teed up perfectly, it was very early in the morning. Uh, it was a 4 a.m. workout. And I tried to beat him to the gym and was unsuccessful because he got there even earlier than I did uh, to get in a proper warm-up. And I remember the, the most shocking thing about watching his early morning workout was that he was doing such basic drills. Uh, he was doing stuff that I had done with middle school age players. Now, Uh, this is Kobe Bryant, who at the time was the best player on the planet. So he was doing things at an unparalleled level of intensity and with unparalleled focus and precision. But the actual drills he was doing was incredibly basic. And that really surprised me. You know, here I am, a young coach thinking the best player in the world is going to be in there doing some flashy and sexy drills. And he was just working on the fundamentals over and over. And I was curious why. So later that day at camp, I, I asked him and just said, you know, Kobe, I don't get it you're the best player in the world. Why are you doing such basic drills? And he was very gracious and smiled and said, well, why do you think I'm the best player in the world? Because I never get bored with the basics. And that phrase and that mindset and that concept has stuck with me since that moment in time, that if you want to be excellent in any area of your life, you have to embrace the basics and you have to embrace the fundamentals. And you have to work towards mastery of them during the unseen hours as consistently as possible. And That's how I try to approach everything in my life. You know, whether it's trying to be a good father or trying to be a good keynote speaker, I try to look and and deconstruct what are the basic pillars of what it would take to be a good father or be a good keynote speaker. And I need to make sure that I'm working on those skill sets relentlessly. There's two things I just
1: want to cover off before we move on. You said it was 4 a.m. You were early, yet he was even earlier than you. Just run that for us. Well,
3: I got there at 3.30 because I figured if I was going to be there, I might as well try and impress him. And, and I wanted <sighs> to kind of be standing by the front door when he walked up so he would think, wow, this guy's serious. And instead, I roll in at 3.30 in the morning, and he was already in a full sweat. I mean, he had probably gotten there at, you know, I don't know, 2.45, 3 o'clock, because he was going through an intense warm-up before his actual workout started at 4.00. And that was I mean, that just hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, here's somebody that is the best player in the world, someone that has mastered his craft, someone that has made hundreds of millions of dollars, someone that's an NBA champion, someone that's a surefire Hall of Famer, an all-star. Like he's accomplished everything, and he's still choosing to get there that early to work on his craft. And and he clearly was cut from that same cloth of, you know, that that if you're on time you're late, that you get to everywhere early so that you can be fully prepared. And He understood that if his workout started at four, well, that meant his mental, physical and emotional preparation to compete during that workout had to start, you know, an hour earlier. Do you, you may not know the answer to this,
1: Alan, but I'm curious that if a a high performer like Kobe is getting there at that time, and the book talks a lot about rituals and routines and you got your own rituals and routines for you as a high performer. Do you know what his wind down routine is at the other end of the day? Because to get there at a certain time in the morning, one would think as a high performer, he would know the priority of sleep and winding down. Are you familiar with the other end of the day with how he does that, how he executes that in order to be able to get there to do the warm up before his session starts?
3: You know, I'm actually not familiar with it, but if I can make some uh, educated guesses and some assumptions, uh, I know that a high performer like that would value sleep. uh, So I'm willing to bet that he would uh, abstain from doing other activities that most people would be doing, you know, going out and partying and things like that, um, because I know how serious he took his craft and and, and how perfectly aligned his priorities were. Uh, I also know, too, and, you know, when we talk about the general masses, there's always going to be an outlier and, and a guy like Kobe Bryant was an outlier. You know, there's not, I, I mean, he might've been able to perform at a high level on five or six hours of sleep where for most of us, it's seven or eight hours. Um, you know, he's the kind of guy that could do three workouts every day in the offseason where that would burn out or injure most other people. So, because uh, I would have players all the time say, you know, well, should I work out at four in the morning and should I do three workouts a day? Because that's what Kobe did, and and I would have to say very respectfully and usually with a smile, uh, you're not Kobe Bryant. Like you need to do what's right for you and for your body. And you know, uh, the only way you can get up at two thirty or three in the morning to perform at a high level is if you have the discipline to put yourself to bed you know, at an early time so that you can recharge your battery and, and be ready to go. And, and Kobe was relentless about taking care of his body and doing all of the little things in between uh, from a strength and conditioning and performance standpoint that would allow him to do that. But he is definitely an anomaly, and, and there's not many people in the world that could go through the types of workouts he did as early as he did, as often as he did every day for a 20-year career, without getting severely burned out or or significantly injured.
1: Kobe was known as the Black Mamba, and it was a code name for a deadly assassin in Quentin Tarantino's movie Kill Bill back in the early 2000s. He he adopted that nickname to separate his life on and off the court, apparently in an interview he did. And in his mind, the Black Mamba was based on five key emotions of what he called the Mamba mentality which is honesty, detachment, optimism, passion and fearlessness. And he called it the Mamba mentality, it's a mindset for continuous self-improvement. What I'm curious about is we had Todd Herman who wrote the Alter Ego effect on the show and Oh yeah, the Mamba like f- yeah, for Kobe is a an alter ego it's a it's a perfect example of an alter ego which he stepped into on the court it exhibited certain values around being an optimist and passion and fearlessness but he may it was a part of him but not all of him if he stepped off the court he may or may not embrace it do you know many other players or many other examples do you see this a lot as a high performance tool
3: uh, yeah, and, and and I've seen Todd speak and I, I follow him on social and, and, and really enjoyed his book. I, I think he's, he's done a terrific job and, and is definitely one of the best in the space. Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it's highly individualized for everyone. I think some people um, feel more comfortable stepping into an alter ego and they embrace that. Uh, I think other people – do it, but they don't even realize that they're doing it. They're just doing it by accident or default. Uh, and somebody as brilliant as Todd can actually categorize them and saying, "Yeah, they're doing it." Uh, but then, like anything, I would imagine for some people that, that that may not work directly for them in some capacity. But yeah, the concept of that is is amazing. Uh, but one thing that I found, you know, especially with somebody like Kobe and a lot of these other high performers, there are certain aspects of their mindset that they just don't or can't turn off. Uh, And a lot of them, it's competitiveness. You know, uh, a guy like Kobe Bryant, yes, he's going to be the Black Mamba on the court. But if you challenge him to a game of ping pong, he's going to be the Black Mamba in a game of ping pong. I mean, I I would imagine, I I never asked him, but I would imagine he probably shares my views on not letting my kids win with things. Um, But that's, that's the mindset that that those guys have. And, and any of those high performers I've been around, it's fascinating. Most of them will say immediately that they hate the feel of losing more than they enjoy the feeling of winning, that it's, it's doing everything they can. Their competitiveness is drived on this fear or hatred of losing, that the feeling they get from losing is a much starker feeling than the joy they get from winning. Uh, and many of them, I mean, the moment they win something of significance, the champagne hasn't even dried yet, and they're already thinking about how can I win this again? How can we repeat and go back to back? Like they don't even take three minutes to enjoy it; they're already thinking about that that next championship or that next accolade. Uh, and that's something, yeah, that I've I've definitely found in common with a lot of major high performers. Uh, Todd, in his book,
1: and he mentioned to us on the show that in order to use an alter ego like the Black Mamba, you have to have true self-awareness because it's a part of you, not all of you. And it's a commonality with you because the start of your book, and it's a very important starting point, you quite clearly outline that self-awareness is a big part of the process to raise your game, create an alter ego. I guess my question is, with all the people you've seen and worked with now, Alan, how how do you know you've got true self-awareness? Because I think a lot of people would say, I've got it. But if you actually sat down and pulled it apart, put it back together again, you'd question whether they do or not. How, do, how does one know they've got true self-awareness?
3: They'll know they have true self-awareness if the way they view themselves is in alignment with the way the rest of the world sees them. Uh, so a perfect example would be, you know if if I asked you, if you're a good active listener, and you say yes. But then I ask the four or five people that know you the best, and they all say, no, you're not. That means there's a disconnect, that, that you see yourself as a good listener, but everyone else sees that you're not. Uh, so that would, would lead to the assumption that you actually don't have very high self-awareness. Uh, as funny as it may sound, if I asked you if you're a good listener and you said, no, Alan, I'm not, it's something I need to improve on, and then I asked the four or five people closest to you and they said, oh, yeah, that's definitely something he needs to improve on, uh, that would mean you have very high self-awareness. You'd be very aware, you know, well aware of the fact that listening was kind of your Achilles heel and that you need to get better at it. So this is not about – trying to do things to pander for attention or add, you know, uh, affection from others. But it's about making sure that the way you see yourself is the way everyone else sees you. Uh, And that's why classic narcissists have very low self-awareness because they view themselves as being just the be all end all and look how great I am. And I'm so awesome. And the rest of the world's like, well, actually you're not, Um, here's some flaws and some weaknesses you have, and they don't pay any attention to that. So this is why as, as crazy as it sounds, the best way to heighten your self-awareness is to ask others. Now, you have to vet that list very carefully. I'm not talking about asking some random stranger or an acquaintance on Facebook, but the people that know you the best. Hopefully, you've provided a fertile and safe enough environment that they they're open to telling you the truth and you can ask them and say, "Hey, you know, I view myself as this this and this. How do you see me?" Um and and see if there starts to be some alignment there. But that's really what self-awareness is. And uh, to me, and and it's it's also not something that you ever arrive at or finalize. Like all of us should be on a constant journey of improving self-awareness for as long as we're on this planet. You know, I'm very proud to say that I am more self-aware today than I was a year ago. And as I said before, if I connect with you again a year from now, hopefully I'll be even more self-aware then because it's something that I'm constantly trying to refine and and refocus the lens on.
1: And it's, you looking at the, the lens on yourself, I've heard you say that you actually believed that you were not a very good listener. So it's curious you raised that as a as a, a way to look at self awareness, but that's something where you had to you actually did put the lens back on yourself. How what changes did you make? How did you go about improving your ability to truly listen?
3: So I went through a divorce four years ago, and I, and I always like to say that it was a very amicable divorce because I'm very proud of the fact that my ex wife and I uh, get along very well now and we make excellent co parents with our children. And part of that divorce process was going in for some counseling and, and some therapy with a, a psychologist. And that was when it really hit me uh, that I wasn't a great listener because she flat out told me. I mean, you know, she, she would say it, and, and, and I adored her, and she was so pivotal in, in the growth that I've made over these last few years. But she would just flat out say, Alan, you're not listening, or you're not a very good listener, or you're coming to the table with all these assumptions and preconceived notions. You're not taking any time to hear the other side of things. And at first, like most people that aren't good listeners, I was very defensive and thought she didn't know what she was talking about. But once I was able to remove my ego and step aside and go, you know what, this lady has no – I mean she doesn't get anything out of telling me I'm a bad listener unless I am, so – Maybe I'm not a great listener. And then I reached out to some other people that I was close with and said, hey, I've always thought I was a good listener. What do you think? And they would all very politely and with love say, uh, I think you could probably be much better. And that was when I, I started to realize it. So you're talking about a blind spot that I had had for almost four decades before I even opened my eyes up to it. And then once that I realized that, then I was committed to changing that because I, I to this day, believe that listening uh, is one of the most important fundamentals that a human being can have um, because it shows people that you care. So whether it's me actively listening to my children, whether it's me actively listening to a, a, a family member or a friend or a business colleague or a meeting planner or someone from a speaking bureau, like listening is a vital skill set to have. And I've worked really hard to improve on that. And I certainly don't think I'm a world-class listener at present. But boy, am I a lot better than I was four or five years ago. And I can promise you I'll be even better next year.
1: I can only imagine going through a divorce, working through with a therapist. That's, that's an intense moment in anybody's life. When you look back, Alan, with the work you've done, I mean, if you look at the front page of your website, you've hung out, hung out and studied and been influenced by some of the greatest basketballers of our lifetime high-performance coaches, high-performance players. Do you, When you look back, was there a particular tool you took from the world of sport that you applied to yourself during that period of the divorce?
3: Oh, without question. And, you know, it, it's fascinating because uh, the divorce was... Certainly there was some sadness. You know, I, I had made a commitment to someone else and, and that relationship was not going to go on. And there was some sadness around the fact that we had children and, and we were, you know, wanted to be very conscious of the fact that our decision to divorce could have a very big impact on them, and we wanted to navigate that. Uh, But I always say, and and people sometimes look at me with a crooked eye, I mean, my divorce was the best thing that ever happened to me outside of my kids being born because divorce is what led me to therapy, and therapy is what led me to self-awareness, and self-awareness is what's opened up Pandora's box for everything in my life right now. I mean, I have fruitful relationships. I have a wonderful career. I do what I consider to be meaningful work. I mean, there's so many great things going on in my life and they're all extremely heightened because of that self-awareness. So I'm so thankful, as painful as it was at the time to go through it, it was one of the best things ever. But to answer your original question, the best thing that I learned from therapy and that I learned from these high performers that apply to life and business is you always have to remain coachable. You know, it's important that you're confident in your skills, you're confident in yourself, uh, but no one has all the answers and no one is perfect at anything, that all of us need to remain open and humble for coaching, for people that can help us see the blind spots we can't see, for people who have an expertise or an experience in something that we don't have. You know, the best players in the world all continue to have coaches. And you're talking about people that are in the upper 1% of what they do and they still have coaches because they know, hey, even they can get just a little bit better.
1: I I really enjoyed the book, Alan, and I enjoy hearing you speak about this. I'm curious that if, since the book has come out and then when the book comes out, you then engage in, you said 200 odd podcasts, interviews with people, you meet people in the street who read the book and want to share their story. Since the book came out, is there an ideology that you held that now has changed, you maybe changed your
3: perspective on? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a brilliant question and, and one that I haven't been thrown before from 200 podcasts. Um, no, nothing that jumps out immediately. If anything, uh, I believe that committing the book and, and my thoughts and lessons to paper has actually strengthened my conviction in those principles uh, because now I live them even more so. Um, I'm not a fearful person, but one of my kind of biggest fears is that someone is going to see me acting in a manner that is not in alignment with what I preach, that someone is going to see me acting in a manner that's not in alignment with what I wrote in that book or what I say on stage when I'm giving a keynote. So the fact that I actually put a book out into the universe I feel like I have to be living by those rules all of the time or else I'll feel like a phony or I'll feel like a hypocrite. Now, with that said, I'm not perfect, obviously. I I preach in the book how important it is to be early. And I am occasionally late for something here or there. And I, I'm not going to make an excuse for why I would be late because there's not one. If you're late, you're late. It's black and white. So it, it's not as much the little things like that. But you know, I, I would certainly – and now you know, I take a lot of pride during this global pandemic that I have an opportunity to even live out those principles in the book even more because it would be so easy to live those things out when things are going great much harder to live those principles out when things are really challenging and tough. So nothing jumps out at me immediately as far as an ideology change, uh, but it's really strengthened my convictions. But I will say, and this isn't ideology, I was definitely wrong in my prediction in the book that Chris Paul and James Harden were going to be a great dynamic duo with the Houston (laughs) Rockets uh, because clearly that, that one didn't quite pan out. And, uh, You know, they've since removed Chris Paul and they've added Russell Westbrook. So I really did think at the time of the book that those two were going to make, you know, a serious run and be championship contenders, because I think Chris Paul is just a phenomenal point guard and James Harden is arguably the best offensive player in the game. uh, And that obviously didn't quite mesh. So there's certainly a couple things in the book that probably didn't prove to be 100% accurate, but nothing from an ideology standpoint that I can think of.
1: You know, it's funny, i was going to draw a couple of things together here, but hearing you talk about the fact that you have written this book and having it, in your words, in black and white almost sets a standard for you to live by and to deliver upon. And we had a guy on the show a couple of seasons ago called Jason Redmond, Jay Redmond, and he was a, a Navy SEAL who was shot in the face horrifically in Afghanistan in a firefight. And he went through 27 odd surgeries. And he lost part of his nose, his cheek, his ear. Like he was badly messed up. And famously he put a sign up on the door of his room in the hospital. And he was there for a long time, obviously. And this red sign talked about if you come in this room, don't come in with sympathy. I did I've got these injuries doing what I love for a country I love for something I believed in. And that sign got a lot of recognition around the States, even to the point where the president acknowledged it. And there was a point where one day Jay said he was feeling down on himself and he was feeling sorry for himself. And he said, well, hang on a second. I'm the overcome guy. Like, I, I'm the guy with that sign. That's me. And he actually almost had to uh, readdress his identity And I'm almost now hearing the same thing, that once you put a book out there and it talks about standards and performance and the fundamentals and raising your game, it's almost now that putting it in black and white has reinforced an identity for you, that not just for what you believe in, but also that others are now looking and expecting it from you. That identity piece seems quite strong once you put something or
3: publish something. Is that something that you would resonate with? Absolutely. So insightful and you nailed it perfectly. And it's one of the reasons that I'm incredibly transparent uh, about my professional life on social media. Because I actually think that writing a book and putting it out in the world or making a post on social media – I use that as kind of an accountability tool. It's like, you know what? I have to live by these principles of raise your game. If not, I'm a fraud and a phony, and that's the last thing I would ever want to be considered. Same thing with, with social media. You know, I put posts out there. I mean I, I have a current streak uh, of using the Headspace guided meditation app that I'm very proud of, and I put that out there because I want to help hold myself accountable to that. And one of the things that you need to do from an accountability standpoint is keep that spotlight on, is making sure that there's always other people that are aware of what it is you're trying to accomplish and what you're trying to do so that they can help you in that journey and that process. And and I use social media as a tool to be able to do that. You know, I I, I certainly I want to be a positive example for other people in their area of life. So if I make a post about, you know, me playing a board game with my children, part of that is because I absolutely love playing a board game with my children. But part of that is I want to show other people that I'm making the time to play a board game with my children because that might be the little piece of information or inspiration that they need to do the same thing. Or they need to be able to step aside and go, man, you know, I thought I was too busy to play a game with my kids. Well, Alan's pretty busy. He 's playing a game with his kids, you know what? I can do this so I, I think putting stuff out in the universe can hold you to a higher level of accountability and standard if you use it the right way and, and the book is absolutely that for me and same with speaking I mean I, I don 't want to give a you know be on stage in front of two thousand people giving a keynote saying all of these things uh, about doing things right during the unseen hours and and living with high character and you know, filling your bucket, doing all that. And then later that night, somebody sees me at the bar being disrespectful to a waiter. They're like, oh my God, this guy just, he fed us a bunch of BS when he was on stage. He doesn't live a life like that. So while we're all going to make mistakes and have poor judgment and we may say or do the wrong thing here or there, I work very, very hard to make sure that what I put in that book mirrors who I am and the way I behave uh, during both the scene and the unseen hours in my everyday life. Two, two quick things before we finish because I'm mindful
1: of your time. Based on that, what habit has Alan Stone Jr. implemented into your world that separates you from all the other guys? You're not the only person who will be speaking on a topic like this who's worked with high performers, who writes about high performers, who walks on a stage in front of 2,000 people but you've, you, you've, you've risen above the crowd. What's the habit that you think you've implemented so well that has separated you from everybody else?
3: I know there's a few and I don't know that it's necessarily separated me from everyone else. And I I certainly don't necessarily believe that other, um, speakers aren't doing the same things, but, but I also make the habit of trying not to play the comparison game. I mean, I've got some colleagues, you know, I'm confident in what I do. I mean, I, I prepare. When I step on stage, I feel great about what I'm going to say and I'm in the moment and I'm excited. Um, and that's all that matters. Uh, but I have some colleagues that, I mean, I put them on the Mount Rushmore of speakers. I mean, they are phenomenal. But I don't, I don't compare myself to them. What I compare is, can I develop a level of mastery of what I do that rivals their level of mastery and what they do? Uh, so I'd say some of the things that, that make... Me different from a speaking standpoint is I very much approach it the same way that I approached athletics. Like I view, I view that keynote as my game and I prepare for it as if it's a game. I have a very consistent preset pregame routine um, that starts the day before or the night before. You know, I, I do my due diligence with every company that I work with. So I'm relentless in, as one would say, studying the tape or coming up with a game plan. Um, and, and again, I've, through trial and error, have figured out what do I need to do mentally, physically, and emotionally to make sure that when I step on that stage, I will be the best version of myself and best able to serve that audience. And that might be the key statement right there because whether it's for the, whether it was with the book or when I'm on stage, my number one goal is to serve the audience. Uh, I was taught at a very early age. That is coaching mantra 101 is the mindset of it's not about me. It's about you. Even this podcast right now, I mean, you're, you're, you're amazing to work with. You're asking awesome questions. You're making my job so easy. But this podcast is not about me. This podcast is about you and your listeners. And my goal is, can I offer as much value in the hour that we spent together as humanly possible? That's all that matters to me. And I view the same thing when I step on stage. I'm not up there to say what I want to say. I'm up there to say what I believe is in the best interest of being valuable to the audience. And same thing for the book. Um, I mean, I loved writing it and I love what's in it, but I didn't write stuff for myself. That's what I would do in a journal. I wrote stuff that I hope is of service to someone else. So when they read that book or listen to that book, their life or their perspective or their behavior slowly starts to change because of something they read. So I think as long as you can approach the speaking craft all about serving others and doing what's best for them and not for yourself, and you have a very consistent routine on how you approach your craft, then I I think you have the potential to maximize your own level of talent. And that's, that's how I approach it for myself. And
1: in the book, you also talk about the importance of not just self-awareness, but also being present. And then I've heard you say that you had a hard time staying present because I see you seem to be the sort of guy who's got lots of ideas, loads of energy, you want to make things happen, yet you said it was a weakness in your toolbox. How, how have you attacked fixing that breach in your own
3: approach to presence? I believe if most people are being honest – most people will say that they struggle with being in the present moment. I mean, outside of, of you talking to a, a Tibetan monk, I mean, most people in the day-to-day <laughs> that are, that are barra- you know, with this barrage of distractions that all of us are facing incessantly every minute of every day, that being fully present is really challenging. So once again, it's not about can you be perfectly present, it's can you make progress in that area. Um, And yeah, it ebbs and flows. I mean, even now, I have some days where I'm much more present than others. Um, I have sometimes when I have my kids that I'm much more attentive and present than others. Uh, But the key is to make sure that, generally speaking, you're trending upwards. And it really starts with, being able to have some type of trigger or recognition when you are not present. That's what's vital. So you know, it's being able to say, you know, uh, hey, I'm on this podcast, but I'm thinking about what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. Uh-oh, I better get back to being present for this podcast. That's what's most important. And one of the best ways for me to do that is to create some systems. So right now, while I'm speaking to you, I'm in my office at, at home right outside of Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm not checking email. I'm not on my phone. I'm not folding laundry. I'm not walking on a treadmill. I'm not doing anything except sitting at my desk fully focused on the conversation that we're having and adding value to your listeners Uh, because if I was doing those other things, they would start to derail my presence. Now, I'm not – I mean I'm sure that I could fold laundry and still give a great interview or (laughs) still walk on the treadmill and give a good interview. But I don't, I don't want to risk giving you anything less than the best that I'm capable of. And so that's one. And then the other area is just being able to recognize when my mind does wander and then being able to snap back into the present moment immediately. So I don't judge myself. I don't beat myself up. I don't go, God, Alan, stop thinking about what you're going to have for dinner. Get back to folk. No, I just – I move to the next thought and the last thing that i'll say that has helped tremendously that i mentioned earlier was i follow the uh, a guided meditation on headspace every morning for 10 minutes and that daily practice has helped me improve my mindfulness and awareness and present and and even to this day i mean i'm closing in on a thousand consecutive days of doing a, a daily meditation and there're still some days that i'm much more present than others there're some mornings during that 10 minute meditation I'm thinking about the 64 things I want to get done today, and I'm not present to what's going on. And then there's other times where I'm I'm totally in the moment, and it's almost zen-like. So it's going an to ebb and flow. Uh, but I think with with putting those pillars in place, I have more control over being present in more moments than I did before. And it's in those it's it's there's a term you use in the book
1: that you mentioned earlier in the show, and I'll just let you close with this. But I think it's such. Such an important piece of this whole performance, high performance puzzle is the unseen hours. And for you, things like meditation, systems, are they the the things you do almost in your unseen hours, Alan, that bring you presence to be able to perform?
3: Absolutely, uh, you you nailed that. And you know what's kind of funny, and I, I joke. My brother gives me a hard time. He's my my digital uh, ninja. He helps me with all my social stuff. But you know, I'll make a post about it, and he'll say, "Well, now they're not unseen hours. You're telling everybody else you're doing it, so now those are seen hours." And, and he's he's got a very good point. Uh, but again, the reason I do that is, you know, if I didn't post anything about meditation then maybe some people in my following wouldn't know that I do it and wouldn't know that that's a viable tool for them to try and it wouldn't have an effect on them. So uh, I do try to shine a light on my own unseen hours as often as possible, just hopefully being of service to anyone that's, that's reading, watching, or listening. Uh, but yes, I'm a huge believer that the vast majority of what dictates our performance and achievement is what we do during the unseen hours. You know, I mean, if two teams are going to collide in the championship – uh, game, who wins that game is heavily predicated on what they did, not just the day before or the week before, but the months and years before. All of those things, you have to start to to cumulatively add them up to put them in that place. And yeah, I mean, people talk all the time, you know, let's say with keynote speaking, and and, and I I command a, a respectable fee for my speaking, and someone would say, you know, I can't believe they pay you X amount for one hour on stage. And I'm like, well, hang on a second, they're not paying me just for that one hour on stage. That's only one piece of the puzzle. They're paying me for the hours and hours and hours during the unseen times of what it takes to prepare so that when I do get on stage, I'm the best version of myself. So if, if, you know, if, if somebody uh, you know, signs a contract today for me to speak six months from now, <clears throat> it's not like I just wait and just show up and wing it. There'll be tons of hours poured into the due diligence to make sure that I'm prepared to play, quote unquote, at that time. And that's ultimately what someone's paying me for. And yes, if you still you know, amateurize it down, I'm still making great money. And this is not a complaint, but this is not like you get a whole lot of money for just one hour. Oh, it's, there is no keynote in the world that's only one hour of preparation or work by far. That's actually just the fun time. That's the game. You know, that's like saying an NBA team, you know, well, you just played in the game. No, they've been practicing for hours and hours and they've had individual workouts and off season. All of that stuff adds up.
4: I heard a great story that goes to that the other day, just a quick one. It's the story goes that there's a a guy who owns a boat and he can't get his motor to get to start. And he calls five or six different mechanics and they all come and they're there for two and three hours at a time. And none of them can get it to start yet they're billing him for their time and he calls this last guy this old gentleman older gentleman and he turns up has a look at the motor feels around has a look at a few things gets a hammer and taps it with the hammer and the engine starts and he gives the guy the bill and the the guy goes well you're charging me this much money just to tap the engine with the hammer and he said I'm not charging you for tapping it with the hammer I'm charging you for knowing where to hit it with the hammer.
3: Exactly. Oh, I love that. So brilliant. And that's what it is. It's it's the years of expertise. I mean, that's the other thing. It's when I'm giving a keynote, I'm not giving a keynote on something that I learned earlier that week. I'm giving you a keynote on four decades of life experience being around high performers. And I've curated all of that. And I'm sharing that siphoned down into this one hour. So not only is it about creating ideas and content, it's also curating ideas and content. And that's, yeah, that's ultimately what someone is paying for. And, and that's why, you know, you could have someone that, that's a, you know, that offers executive coaching. You know, they've been doing that for 30 years. Yeah, they're giving you a tremendous amount of value in that time that they're coaching you. And, and I would hope that their, their fees reflect that. The two words,
1: curated and siphoned. Uh, all the stuff we've talked about is in Alan's book called Raise Your Game, High Performance Secrets from the Best of the Best. I've actually, I I got the audio book. I've listened to it twice. I've been twice through it. I really read the book and I think that if anybody likes the conversation we've had, Alan, that's the place to go to get more of it. There's loads, you're a good storyteller. There's loads of great stories in there from, People like Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry, and Kobe Bryant, and a whole bunch of others, all the coaches you've worked with. Well done on the book, mate. It's terrific. Where where should we send people to find out about that book, the work you do, your keynotes, Alan Stone Jr.? Where's your
3: hub? Well, I I appreciate that immensely. I mean, it's – I I know – I just hope you know how grateful I am that you've invested your time into something that I've done. So I, I thank you immensely. Uh, anyone that wants to know anything about me, the major hub is just allensteinjr.com. Uh, that's where everything about my speaking is. Uh, in fact, I just put together a page of free resources, uh, of free downloadable PDFs, a ton of free clips. I even recorded a virtual keynote because I wanted to offer something for everyone that's stuck at home for the next four to six weeks uh, that they would hopefully find helpful and inspiring. And that's just at allensteinjr.com backslash free. Uh, and then anything that has to do with the book, uh, you can go to raiseyourgamebook.com. Uh, there's tons of stuff there, uh, and it's available in all sorts of formats. So if somebody wants it on their Kindle or their, you know, their iPad or they want to listen to it, as you mentioned, through audiobooks or iTunes, uh, I wanted to make sure that uh, folks could get digital versions of it as well. Uh, even for this, this pandemic, I reached out to my publisher immediately and said, you know, can we make the the electronic version or the audio version free for the month of March uh, as as a way to give back? And and unfortunately, and I, I don't say this to throw them under the bus. I mean, they have a business to run. Uh, but they were like, no, we simply can't do that because uh, I, I wanted to be able just to put that out there. So because um, I know sometimes shipping costs can almost make it uh, preventative for someone to want to pick up a copy. But uh, yeah, if you enjoyed this conversation, uh, not only would I love for you to read the book, but uh, drop me a line on social media. I'm at Allen Stein Jr. on all of the major social handles. Would love to, to continue this dialogue. Uh, I really appreciate you know, the, the effort you made to make sure that we could connect. And, and I'm, I'm so thankful that we had a chance to talk.
1: Well, it's funny because I can almost tell a great interview because when you say pages, I've actually got two pages of stuff that I wanted to get to that we are not going to get to today because time uh, hasn't allowed it. But um, hopefully down the track. Well, I don't, we I, don't can... want to invi-
3: I don't want to invite myself over, but I would love to do it. We can do it again, <laughs> man. We can always do a part two to this. That's that's no problem. I, I love these conversations and I love sharing and, and you've been a, a real pleasure to to work with and chat with. So just drop me an email whenever you want to go for round two. Well, we, you may have just dubbed yourself in there. We may
1: just have to hold you to that, mate, because uh, there's Check loads your emails. more. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
3: Perfect.
0: This is Leif Babin, former Navy SEAL, co-author of the books Extreme Ownership and The Dichotomy Leadership, president of Echelon Front, and you are listening to the Mojo Radio Show.
4: Stand by to get some. It's a real American term, Junior, isn't it? You don't really get, you know, Darren Robertson Junior, Gary Bitlis <laughs> Junior in Australia, do you?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny. I thought the same thing, Lola and, Junior. And I had I listened to the book a couple of times. I would listen to I reckon ten hours of stuff that he's done around the place, and no one's ever asked that question. And I wondered whether there was a senior, or whether there was just mm. some story that tied back. You know what I mean? Like because so, you don't hear it. Yeah, often. yeah, absolutely. No,
4: absolutely. Well, you're, um, uh, not being an American myself, but you know, often you see American dads. Saying, you know, calling their sons junior just because that's their nickname, sort of thing,
1: too. So yeah. But well, what I like about this guy is I love these sorts of guests because he got that lesson from his dad. And he's one of the few guests that emailed me the week of the interview to check-in, the day prior to the interview mm. to check-in, two hours prior to the interview to check-in, and was online ready to rock and roll when we were ready and we were early. So I love the fact that guys don't just talk about it. And we've had people on. We've had people on before that are the world's most disciplined person, the world's most productive person, and they're not there when (laughs) you (laughs) call.
2: Yes. It's
1: really interesting. Uh So I like this guy and uh, I do recommend the book. It is a worthy. I like the book on audio because he narrates it and you feel like he's talking to you. So uh, there you go.
2: The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot.
1: Tell me the name of this song and who sings it. Lean on me. Uh,
4: when you're not strong, let me carry on. Uh, um, oh, Jesus. It's too early in the morning, Bert. Whistle. Um, when you're not strong,
1: you Need some more fish ripper roast. <laughs> uh, Lola. No. Coffee for the portly engin- engineer, please.
0: I don't make coffee.
4: <laughs> uh, I should know it, but I, c- I can't think of it right now. And you're gonna you're gonna say it, and I'm gonna go yes, of course.
1: But anyway, and that's actually why I bring this up, just to close the show, as part of the close of the show. But I find this very interesting that we know the song by so many artists, but we can't, we don't know who the man is yet. That guy who died recently at the age of 81 from heart complications. When you look online, there are so many notes of sorrow and recognition from people like Lenny Kravitz, Michelle Obama, Bette Midler, Joe Rogan, the famous podcaster, Jimmy Buffett, and even our own Jimmy Barnes all had put out heartfelt tributes to the man called Bill Withers. And he was one of the R&B soul brothers who brought such feeling and emotion. And in fact, some of the guys actually said the first time they heard Lean On Me or Ain't No Sunshine, they cried. So I thought it was a fitting soundtrack, Lean On Me right now, to what's happening around the world. But obviously you can't lean on each other. As you can, because you've got to keep 1.5 to 2 (laughs) metres, but you can lean on each other by Zoom or FaceTime. So God But Not Forgotten, Bill Withers, 81, who wrote and performed Lean On Me. Just a great song.
2: Joe radio show.
1: Somebody else who passed away during the week from the virus. So this is, we're now starting to hear a lot of celebrities who are contracting and or losing their life it was a guy called Ellis Masalis Jr. Speaking of junior, he was 85. Do you, does that name ring a bell for you? Uh, it does,
4: but I couldn't say why. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: See, it means a lot to me because it's a story that I have shared on the show before, but Ellis Ellis Marcellus Jr. taught Harry Connick Jr. jazz and he was the patriarch of a famous New Orleans family of jazz musicians, which is Branford Marcellus and Winston Marcellus. And there's a story of one of the boys walked up to his mum And his mum said, what do you want to do when you grow up? He said, I want to be a jazz musician like my dad. And she said, well, that's a good idea, but you better have a fallback plan. I think you should go to university and have something to fall back on. And sometime later, he walked up to his dad, Ellis Marcellus Jr., and said, I was talking to my mum, and I want to be a musician like you, but she said, I should go to university and have a fallback plan. And he said, son, if you've got a fallback plan, it means you're planning to fall back. If you want to be a musician, you have to give it everything you've got. And I thought that's a really great because you hear a lot of people who've got a startup business or want to go and do something and they have these fallback plans, which subconsciously they're saying to themselves, this may not work. And once you leave the door open for your subconscious mind, it will find all the evidence to back it up. And I've never forgotten that story and I hear it a lot when I'm working with people one-to-one is they got this fallback plan. If you've got a fallback plan, it means you plan to fall back. And he is, as they said, he's a patriarch of New York, famous, famous New Orleans. And which popular musician, uh, a favourite of yours, did uh, Branford Marcellus, Winston Marcellus it's one of those, play acoustic percussion for? Ac- Any not idea? Miles Davis. Eh, sting. Oh, there you go. All right, to take us out this week, Do you remember the army ranger who never takes life too seriously? Should I? Yes. There's a lesson in this. My brain's just not working this morning. The the first lesson is it's funny. We hear all these things. You hear the show two or three times, yet these things still don't go in. (laughs) It's a classic. No, it is, it, is. This is one of the things. This is an opportunity today for everybody, all of us, is we listen and we consume a lot of stuff. And as Cameron Schwab said on our show, who I rate very highly, he said, you've got to listen and then curate and then implement. And it's a classic. When we go through these things, we share so much, but we've got to write down the gold and we've got to keep going back and reviewing it and working out how we can embed it into our soul. Because Matt Best, episode 242, was the army ranger who never takes life too seriously and he and his partner Evan Hafer, who was also on the show, I think they were both in Rocktober, talked about living by mission. And at Black Rifle Coffee Company, now a super successful company across the states doing coffee, their mission, which is about providing great coffee and great culture for people who love America, they talked about promoting it inward and outward. So most people just have an inward mission, but they don't promote it outward because then you're kind of leaving yourself open because ooh, now I've got to deliver on it because I've told everybody about it. But that's what they do and everything they do is about the mission. But I reckon during this time right now where leadership and culture is being challenged to the max, people are forgetting about their mission. And I think it's a true test of leadership and true test of culture right now. you remember that? You remember the show with Matt, Yeah, of right? course I do. Um, you see, if you had to said their names, I would. <laughs> said straight away black
4: rifle coffee (laughs) but you throw me the other one it's like um okay (laughs) especially this time in the morning one coffee only two geez
1: the thing i do think we are forgetting about our mission and i think under the pressure of battle and we are in a war with this virus we are forgetting to go back to our fundamentals the core fundamentals of our leadership the core fundamentals of our culture and I just love the fact that during this period, I've been watching the guys. They are completely attacking. They are on the front foot, doing whatever they can in this war, and they're they're the guys (laughs) set up to do it because they've got coffee, they've got a strong mission, and they believe in it. And on the weekend, Matt posted this, which I absolutely love. Can you actually? we'll, We'll put this. I'll put the link to it in the show notes. It's a clip on YouTube. I might get you to also put it up on the book so that people can see it because the film is quite good too, isn't it's it? It's very good. It's very clever and well shot too. I'm impressed. So this is a song that Matt Best and a couple of his mates at Black Rifle Coffee Company have put together with a whole bunch of celebrities around the world. It's about being in quarantine. I reckon the song is gold for a couple of guys that aren't professional musos. It's really, really good. He plays a good guitar when he's had a few scotches, though, doesn't he? Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> he did get a bit loose towards the end of our interview when he was four scotches in uh, the Pendleton. Um, however, I thought it's a really good way to finish. It's lighthearted. It's a good way to finish the show. However, I think sitting behind the lighthearted note of what they've done, it is a good song. It's a fantastic clip, but also it's just another way for us to remember how to promote our mission inwardly and outwardly. And all great leaders, this is a, this is a true test of leadership. And I think we should step up to the test. So, this is Matt Best. I think the song's called Quarantine. All the details in the show notes. Rob I will put it on to the book for you to track it down. And we're out. Went to the
4: grocery store after the stampede People fight for
0: toilet paper like the USC Nothing left on that shelf but a lonely can of beans So I guess I'll head back to the house and take a bath in bleach Quarantine, quarantine, drinking whiskey like vaccine Waving at the neighbors, social distancing to me. I know your freezer stays stocked up. Can I get some fresh, dear me? But I hope your family's well. Hope them hands are clean. Any chance that you might have an extra AR-15. ER quarantine, quarantine, I meant that in like a metaphorical sense, not a literal sense, because if we came together, that would be the antithesis of what quarantine means. But good thing we have Facetime, because we can hang out, and make dumb songs like this, and shout out to all the healthcare workers out there. And and Tim, I really like that chorus. Let's hit that one more time. Quarantine, quarantine, drinking whiskey like vaccine, waving at the neighbors, social distancing. Quarantine, quarantine, we're
2: mojo radio show is produced and recorded in the basement of voodoo sound for more tips and tools to get your mojo working check us out on facebook at the mojo radio show or online at the show.com to help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo you can now find us on patreon Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo radio show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoo sound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com and to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.